0: What's up, everybody? This is Aaliyah. You're listening to Writing Practice. This is kind of a bonus episode. Although it does talk about writing, it is synthesized through the lens of my status as someone who is both in recovery and also diagnosed with bipolar two about a decade ago. I just kind of let the reins go and talk freely about all of the things that impact my life as a writer and how important it's been to me to take care of these things. I manage a cocktail of meds that are taken every single day, a.m. and p.m. I do not uh, attend AA meetings, but strongly recommend them for people who are trying to recover from sobriety. And I also talk a little bit about how this works as a creative. We also have this idea that creatives have to be damaged in some way. I don't agree. Um, I have my opinions on that and more... In this very transparent episode, if I should say so myself, I ended out with a discussion on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I fully believe that I'm in a place now where I'm at the very top of that pyramid. You'll see why and tell me if you agree. It's writing practice. Thank you. what's up up, everyone this is Olivia Eskink you are on my weekly facebook live or you're listening to my podcast writing practice and today is a little bit different than what I'm used to because I've been thinking about the topic for a week since I came up with it last week and Dirt on me. Is it from the plant? Like, do you see like... I just see you taking things <laughs> off. There's like this glandular, I mean granular... I don't know what that is. It's only on one show. I don't know. It was just like All right. dirt. All right, so just, for my I mean, sake, do you want to start that over for, so I don't have to edit my life Okay, away? so hey everybody, what's up? It's Aaliyah. You are with me uh, on my Facebook Live or you're listening to me on my podcast, Writing Practice. Either way, welcome. Um, So this is different. Can you turn my headphones off? My hair. Still hair. That's Mully, y'all. I was listening to a lot of different Facebook Lives over the past, you know, since yesterday, organizing them to have their new home on my podcast. And one of the fun things that I've noticed is the evolution of Mully. Mully. Um, He started out as voice of God. Well, he started out as nothing. It's just like a silent entity every week who was like holding me together and keeping things straight. Um, But I never acknowledged his existence. Then uh, he became voice of God. I never knew that that was an actual thing. It's a thing that people are. You can hear them, but you don't see them. So they're like the voice of God. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I, I called him voice of God for a few, a bit. From then he became Mulligan, I believe Mulligan after that. Uh yes. Which got shortened to Mully, which is what he is now. Um he's also Shane Paul Neal. And he has his own life outside of this podcast. He's an actual real person. Eh. So <clears throat> um okay, wait, something's weird. It's I'm three minutes in and no one has said hello to me. That's not normal. Mm hi there's currently eight people watching hi eight people watching okay well guess what this is not about y'all everything's not about y'all um so today's episode is a little bit different than normal because i have known what i was going to talk about ever since last week and And I've been stressing out about it all week. <clears throat> Normally with these Facebook Live slash podcast thingy whatever's I'm doing, um, I think about them at the earliest the day before. More likely an hour before. More likely than that, five minutes before. I'm kinda just like, oh no. What am I gonna talk about? Oh no, help, help. Um so this time it hasn't been that. I've just been slowly and methodically and calmly thinking about the topic ever since last week and thinking about how much I want to share, um, what I want to share, how I can talk about it without sharing my own story, which is completely unlike me, um, etc. cetera. Um, so before we start, how about we talk about makeup? I'll be doing a, another Facebook Live, probably tomorrow, um, all about my journey to wearing makeup. And it's fun. And I got some new stuff from some a place that you guys suggested uh, that I'm going to, it just came today in the mail. So I'm going to go downstairs right after this, pick it up, and be excited to try it on tomorrow. Um, my channel slash podcast slash live, it can't be a podcast because you can't see me, um, is called Stipple which I learned is just a fancy word for blending in your makeup. Uh, shout out to the person who took stipple.com from me. Appreciate you teaching me the lesson. So that's fun. We'll do that. Um, but that's not what this. Oh, and today I'm wearing Pat McGrath lip gloss. It feels great. A little subtle for me. I like a lip that pops, but I like it. Okay. Um, I guess that's enough. procrastinating yeah Uh, so last week I don't even know how the topic came up but at the very 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 end of uh, the podcast last week we somehow started talking about addiction and creativity and I said you know what let's just give this a whole hour next time because there's a lot there and there's a lot I want to say about it that I either haven't or haven't in detail Um, And here we are a week later. It goes by so fast. So the question, which is the title of this episode, do you need to be an addict in order to be creative or is it helpful? We know that we live in a world where it's assumed that someone who's creative has some type of mental health or addiction issue um, or both. Yay for me being both. Awesome. Um, We think of creatives as needing large swaths of time to create. Um, We think of creatives needing something to numb the pain that comes out with whatever they're creating, whether that's songwriting, whether that's uh, literature, whether that's fine arts. Um, We look at someone like, I'm not going to say any names because I think it's really whack to try to uh, diagnose folks, but we look at people who are super producers and rappers clearly have something going on we don't want to diagnose but we clearly see that they have something going on and we kind of excuse it we kind of say well this is what it means to be an artist um i push back against that quite a bit Uh, i don't think that you need to have any sort of trauma addiction or any other thing in order to be a creative now if we're being super honest I know that most of the folks that are creative, just in my own personal life, tend to have some extra stuff going on in their brains. But I also know that most people in my life, period, creative or not creative, tend to have a little dose of extra stuff in their life. So my story is pretty um, clear cut. I'm one of those lucky people that are what is known in the parlance as dual diagnosed which means that while we don't know which came first the chicken or the egg there's definitely some mental health shit for me as bipolar too and there's some addiction shit which for me is alcoholism so all I know for sure is that they work together they're buddies they're pals I can't have one without the other but what I've had to realize you know what the hell What I've had to realize over the past 20 years is that I can't lean on one or the other. Um, You can't say, let me give an exact, how can I give an exact? Okay, I'll give an exact example. Um, When I wrote my first book in 2007-ish, I finished it in an obscenely short amount of time. To put it in perspective, it took me about a year, start to finish, to get it done. And the novel I'm working on now, I'm going into year five, and it's not done yet. Just to give you a little bit of an example. Um, I was not sober, so I was definitely um, drinking heavily during this time. I didn't realize that there might be a connection there until many years later. I read Stephen King's book on writing, and... He said he has several books. I think Carrie might be one of them. That he has no memory of writing at all. None. When he reads it, it's like reading a book from a whole different author that he does not know. And when I read that, I was like, oh, so I'm not alone there. Because I definitely have one or two books that I don't recall writing at all. They just, I can read them now and be like, wow, that's that's good writing. I don't know who that is, but that's good. Um, You might think that that's like dope. You know? Like you wrote a book quickly, you got a huge advance for it, made the bestsellers list, all the great things, and you were completely not healthy at all. Um, but those things will catch up to you. Those things will always catch up to you, um, because it's not real. That's not real. Being able to write a book that quickly is not real, not for me and probably not for anyone. Um, So, well, actually, I take that back. There are people who write very quickly. I'm not one of them. So I know now that that was not me being balanced. And I ended up paying the price for that in other ways. Um, The next time around, the next book after that was a sequel. And I know I have shared this story before. Uh, My then husband um, asked me, when are you going to start writing the sequel to your book? Because I had just gotten a deal for part two. And part one had just hit the shelves and they already wanted part two because it was doing well. Yay. And I was confused as to why he would ask me when I was going to start because I was already done. And I said, well, I finished the sequel already. And his face was stricken. He was looking at me like, what are you talking about? How could you have finished the book already? The first one just came out and you just got the deal. And I said, well, I started writing it before I got the deal because I was pretty sure I would get a deal for part two. So, as soon as part one was out the door, before it was laid out, before it was, um, the cover was done, before it was sent to a publisher, I started writing part two immediately. By the time I got the contract for part two, it was already finished. And he was concerned. And I remember looking at his, in his eyes, in his face, and not being able to understand why he was looking at me this way. Why are you concerned that I finished this book? And so then he said, Can I, can I see it? And I was like, Sure. Now I realize that he was hoping there would be a moment like that movie. What's the movie? The Scientist at Princeton who was paranoid schizophrenic. Psycho, Google, well, is it? Mm-mm. And he had this like lab in his garage, and he was just always in there writing, 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 writing. And just always coming up with these formulas. A Beautiful Mind. So there's this, por- this part in the movie, A Beautiful Mind, where this professor is in his lab, And he's making up all these formulas. And the wife is like, you got to come out of here. And he's like, I'm about to run the world. This is great. This is great. And one day she comes in and she's like, look at this. Look at what you're doing. This is just scribble. So we see his mind looking at all these formulas that look complicated and well thought out and all this stuff. And then we see it through her mind, which is reality. And it's just scratches, y'all. It's just scribble. It's just nothing but scribble. And somehow she's able to get through to him and he looks down at it and his stomach is just like, oh my God, I think I'm making all these formulas. It's really just scribble. And he's absolutely devastated. Um, So I think at that moment, that's what my then husband was expecting. So he asked me if he could see the book. And of course I gave it to him and... It wasn't Scribble. It was good. It was a good book that I wrote in like a couple months. And that made him even more concerned. So that's where the creativity can really F shit up. Because for me, if I am not well, and I'm not well to the point where I can do well things, that's a clusterfuck. That's just so wrong. That the universe can allow me when I'm not in a good space to be better and stronger and faster and 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 more talented even than when I'm my regular baseline self, how effed up is that? So that kind of goes against what I said in the topic, which is do you need addictions to be creative it's a, It's a very dangerous thing to say, but in all honesty, I am more creative. When I am not well. That's just, I'm faster. I am at the risk of, I want to say I'm better. Maybe I'm not better, but I'm definitely faster. And I'm definitely, uh, the output is, if I could somehow have the output I have when I'm not well and be well, I'd be dangerous. Um, Do I want that? Probably not. Um, since 2015, I have been in search of baseline. And I don't know if I got that from some type of program I went to or whatever, this idea of being baseline, but that's the language that I use with my therapist and my psychiatrist. Are we baseline? Since 2015, that's all I've wanted. I want to be baseline. I want to wake up in the morning and feel centered. Even if that doesn't mean I'm going to take over the world that day, I... I want to know what's in front of me. But it is frustrating that it's taken me five years to one to write one goddamn book. Very frustrating. Um, but I also know that I'm in a good place. My relationship is solid. My motherhood is solid. My sobriety is solid. All of those things are solid. I'm not giving those up to be able to write a book quickly. Um, I feel this. Stephanie said, I feel this. Some of my favorite musicians have made what I consider to be their best music when they weren't sober. I feel terrible admitting that I prefer what they did when they weren't well. Stephanie, I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to say that that's probably not true. I'm going to say that you knowing that they weren't sober affected how you took in their music. I want to hear who you're talking about. Who is this musician that you think made their best music when they weren't sober? Because you really don't know if it's their best music they could have done their best music when they were sober and you never heard it because it wasn't released um so it's easy to say you did your best stuff when you weren't sober just like when people say about mary we like sad mary because she puts out the music that we like as if she's writing and producing that that music um what comes out to you oh shit she said eminem fuck yeah my yeah I I got nothing um shit shit okay so Eminem so there's this weird thing okay let's talk about alcoholism that's one of his vices I think it's fair to say he hasn't been he's been pretty transparent about it he is um a member of AA as am I and has a sponsor and is a sponsor all the good stuff. Um, I feel some type of far away yet close connection to Eminem because we have the same sobriety season. Um, so it's kind of like having the same birthday. And I've seen us do the same things, you know, relapse and get better and parenting. Like I see a lot of similarities there. So it's been it's been interesting to see him, you know, uh, grow. And yeah, yeah, okay that's 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 fair i can't even push back on that one um because he's been so transparent uh but i wonder if he would say that i wonder if he would say he did his best music when he was sober i'm not so sure he would say that because it's 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 arbitrary it's subjective um would i would i say i've done my best music when i was i mean done my best work when i wasn't sober absolutely not um Unfortunately, uh, my best stuff, two or three of my best articles were done during a depression, not anything related to being on the other side. Um, but let's talk about alcoholism. Um, my sobriety date is June 24th, 2004. And I'm one of those lucky people who has two sobriety dates. Um, July 13th, 2011. How can someone have two sobriety dates? You ask, I'll tell you how, um, in 2004, I woke up one day and I was like super hungover and I just was done. I was like, you know what? This shit is not working. Um, I, I hate feeling horrible. The drinking is not doing anything anymore. It's not numbing anything. It's just obliterating you. Um, I grew up going to AA meetings with my grandma um, who had dozens of sponsees in East Orange, New Jersey and chaired a meeting, chaired a meeting on Sunday nights at East Orange General Hospital so at five, six, seven, I'm going to meetings with her. I'm sneaking little snacks, I'm cleaning out the cigarettes. Don't know why she took me to these meetings. She didn't take any of her other eight grandchildren. Um, maybe she saw in Baby Aaliyah that I might need to know where to go someday. Because I woke up one morning and was like, I know where to go. Uh, I drove to Montclair because I would, was afraid to go to a meeting in my town because I didn't want to see anybody I knew. So I went one town over, so everybody I knew, and went to my first meeting, got a sponsor buckled down, did the things they told me to do. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, which they suggest to get you fully indoctrinated in the cult. It's a cult, a cult that I support. Um, shit got better really quick. Um, within a year, I had gotten my first book deal. A year after that, I was married. A year after that, I bought a house. A year after that, I had a baby. All the things are coming into place, none of which would have happened if I weren't sober. Just facts. I'm not going to tell people what to do with their life. But I know for me, um, the things that happened to me when I stopped drinking would just—they would not have happened. Period. Um, by 2010, I am fully the shit. I got a book on the New York Times bestsellers list. Got my my girls are doing well, married, house, all the things. Going on a book tour, um, but I'm not in AA anymore. I don't talk to my sponsor. I actually. I see her in Whole Foods and dip and hide from her because I don't want her to see me and ask me where I've been. Um, I remember one time I was walking down the street and I saw this woman about to give me a ticket, a parking ticket, and I was about to start running to tell her I'm right there. And then I saw it was my homegirl from AA and I was like, eh, I'll just take the $35 because I don't want to hear it and I don't want to deal with these people. Um, my life just felt like I don't need this anymore. I've graduated. I'm good. I don't drink. I don't want to drink. Everything's great. So they have this icky thing they say in AA where they say, anything you put before AA, you will lose. How culty is that? It's also kind of true. Not anything you put before AA, the group, but just anything you put before your sobriety, you will lose. Um, In 2010, I relapsed. And what's always been really stunning to me and I've said this at AA meetings or when I go to speak at different places. Where I ended up six months after the relapse was 20 times worse than all the years that led me to stop drinking in the first place. If that makes sense. Molly, does that make sense? Say it one more time for me. Where I ended up after my relapse in 2010 mm-hmm. is 10 times worse than where I, how things were when I went sure. into yeah, yeah. in the first place. Yeah. I was stunned. I was stunned. you know. The first time around, I was still a very cute drunk. I was still cute, I was still productive, I was still bringing mama home for dinner. Like I was just a normal person. But within six months of the relapse, I was unrecognizable to myself or anybody else. So I was out for a year. I didn't drink the whole year, but I was out for a year. Then in 2011, I was like, this ain't gonna work. I was so afraid to go back to a meeting or to call my sponsor. Um, I just, I wasn't sure. Um, but I did it. My agent at the time was also in AA. And he, I, so, I spoke to him every day. And he would say, Go to a meeting. And I was saying, nah, Because I didn't want to start counting my days over. So I'm sure you know the trope in AA, you count how much time you have. And the first 90 days, you count every day. I have 33 days, I have 47 days. I have 26 and everybody's like, yay. Um, and then you count the years. So I just couldn't imagine having left talking about I have six years and having to go back and saying I have a day. I have two days. I have three. Oh, just oh, the perfectionist in me was like, oh. I was like, yo, can I go back and just not talk about the fact that I relapsed? And he's like, what do you think? No, I can't do that. Um, So one day I finally decided this is the day. I'm going back. I look for a meeting, again, one town over. It's been a year, and I go to the parking lot of the church, and I see all these people standing around smoking as they do before they go inside. I didn't see anyone that looked familiar, just a whole bunch of old white men. And I called my agent, I was like, I can't go in there. He's like, why? And I'm like, it's just nothing but old white men standing out there. And he's like, dude, I'm an old white man. you calling me to tell me you don't want to go into a room of all white men. What's wrong with you? And I was like, I'm just not going to feel comfortable there. And he said something I will never forget. He said, Aaliyah, you could go into a room right now full of 25 black women named Aaliyah from East Orange with two daughters and would feel just as uncomfortable as you do right now. And I said, God damn it. And I went inside. Um, It was a men's meeting, which explains why there are all men out there. Um, AA has all kinds of women only, men only, LGBT, everything. And they're pretty strict about it. So, when I walk in and sit down and they're all coming in, they're looking at me like, nobody wants to say, What are you doing in here? And I'm just sitting there sobbing because it's my first meeting and I don't know how long. And I guess somebody put it together and they let me stay. And they didn't even tell me until afterwards that it's a men's meeting. And I'm glad because I would have left. Um, but it was just hilarious. Like, I'm like old timers, we call them 60 year old white men sitting around like, What is this young black girl doing in here? And I'm just crying and whatever. Anyway, so I was back, 2011. Um, Which means that this summer will be nine years. Just fucking crazy. Um, And I don't go to meetings. Don't have a sponsor. Don't have any sponsees. So 2010, Aaliyah would be like, what are you doing? Um, The reason why I feel confident is because as a dual diagnosis person, uh, my mental health is non-negotiable. Sobriety is non-negotiable too, of course, but mental health actually, for me, just for me, your mileage may vary, but mental health is here. Sobriety is right up there, but there is no sobriety without mental health. Um, And the work that I do kind of overlaps like I'm in therapy y'all I don't miss a session ever and my one hour with my therapist every week um I'm not gonna say it replaces AA but it's all in that family it's all in that family of wellness I am thinking about doing some I saw some links to some zoom meetings for AA I might dip into um but anyway so I've been sober for nine years and then six before that so I don't know. Sometimes I get really pissed off. Sometimes I'm really angry that I had to get saddled with both. Like, who has to be an addict and have bipolar too? Like, what, what, how is that fair? How's that fair? And I'm a creative. How is it fair that I have to balance both of those things? The answer to that is get over yourself. Life ain't fair. Fuck it. But it makes me angry. Sometimes I have moments where I just feel like, you know, when I first started dating Mully, actually, I don't even know if I can say we were dating, just talking. You no, know? whatever we were doing, I remember getting like this lump in my throat like, you have to tell him. You have to tell him. Do you know what that's like to meet someone and feel like you're connecting with them and realize you have to tell them you're fucking drunk and you crazy? Like, what? How? Who wants to do that? I envy someone, a woman who can just say, hi, my name's Elizabeth, and that's just it. And I got two kids. And I'm a writer. That's it. Where you don't have this thing on your back that's like, so I got to tell you something. It sucks. It absolutely sucks. Um, it's better because I feel freer to talk about it like situations like this, um, which I didn't two, three, four, five years ago. I didn't talk about this part of my life at all. Um, hey, Hassan. Yes, I know you can. Um Stephanie said, anything you put before AA, you'll lose. I wonder what else that's true for. Huh. I don't know. I got to think about that. I mean, for me, it also goes, anything you put before your mental health, you'll lose. Because if I decide I want to (laughs) stop taking meds, then it's a mess. Um, Creativity and alcoholism. I don't feel a difference not drinking and creating at all. I'm a better writer. I'm a better writer as a sober writer than I was as a drunk one. Um, By far. Uh, Now, mental health, that's something different. If I don't have a handle on that, uh, there is no help. There's no writing. Um, AC, how did you feel after you shared with Molly? Um that's probably a whole nother episode in and of itself. Um we actually do a podcast together. It's called Good Talk. That would be a great topic. We don't do topics specifically, but it sounds like something that would come up there. But um how did I feel? Relief. I feel I I felt a lot of relief. You know, he shared some stuff with me that he had gone through. It didn't it's not quite not that you can compartmentalize people's trauma, but you know, it still felt you just like... You have to win at everything, huh? I have to, I won. <laughs> you know I won in the game of trauma. Um It felt great, though. It felt great. In the past, it's been like... <clears throat> I want to say this and then shield myself from the judgment. But it didn't seem... It didn't feel like that. Also, it, did, it was cathartic, Karen. But I got to tell you, it happened so early on in this... Whatever we were doing, that there's no way it could be anything but cathartic. What made it cathartic for me was how soon I told him, not that I told him or what I told him. I don't think we had met. I don't even know if I had heard his voice yet. I'm pretty sure we were still within the app that we met in Mm -hmm. Um, and just kind of like doing the basics of my kid is this old, this da-da-da, and I live here. Oh, wow, do you know this person? It was early. I didn't know what his voice sounded like. I had only seen four or five pictures um, of him. I knew nothing. And before we could even get out of the app or – Oh my God! Did I just voluntarily say we were met through a dating app? We we've done that several times already. It never never gets normal. Um, Denise said his voice just caught me off guard. Sorry, I joined late. Yeah, he he wasn't really saying much this time, but yeah, he's here. Um, it was super early. I'm gonna say if I had to guess, let's say we match on said app on a Monday. On Wednesday, I'm like, so I'm a drunk. Nine years sober. bipolar 2 y'all listen listen to what I did I took out all my meds I have five meds I take on a daily basis put them in my hand took a picture of them and texted it to them to him without even getting into what the diagnosis is I was like here what's up um so just the fact that I told him that early on the meds conversation is usually like months down the line where I'm like, okay, by the way, um, every once in a while, you know, I have to build up to that. And I didn't. I just was like, fuck it. I I, I like him already. Let's just give him an opportunity to run now because I don't have time for this. Um, do you think his response brought you closer together? I know that may be for another show. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, in the cheesiest of ways, and I tell Molly this all the time, I knew he was my person even before that conversation. So I felt like telling him super early uh I didn't expect him to be like oh now I can't blah blah blah. I just I already gotten that feeling that that wouldn't be the case um so no actually I don't think it brought us closer together I think it just set the path that we were already on to become close um yeah man yeah I, I I wasn't I wasn't in a place to play no games and I already knew I'd already clubbed him over the head and I wanted to just make it clear that this is what he was going to have to deal with. Um, Particularly since we are both creatives. And I know that he probably uh, already understood that trope of the creative who is also troubled and traumatized. Um Oh wait, I got way off what I was talking about. I don't remember. Uh, I don't think, Yeah, I don't think there's anything to go back to. We just start answering some questions. Oh, okay. Um, You're good. Oh, I was talking about how alcoholism and the written word don't match up. But I will give you that sometimes mental health and the written word do match up. Um, I'm going to say something that I probably shouldn't say. Maybe I talked about this before. Um, Baseline. You want to be baseline. And the cocktail of medications that my doctors put together for me keep me baseline. Uh, there are going to be times like right now, I'm kind of struggling. My cocktail's not working because of the pandemic and I have anxiety. So the things that are supposed to help me go to sleep are not working. I'm staring at the ceiling instead and getting up and doing things. Can't get up and do things when I'm on the meds that I'm on because then you're not going to be able to get up. Or where you do, you're going to be groggy. So it's just this. And then you sleep during the day and then you don't sleep at night again. And then, so I need to figure that out. Um, but the baseline includes, this is how I know I'm baseline. I wake up at a decent hour, probably still have to get help waking up, but maybe wake up on my own. I got a good 12 hours ahead of me for the day. Um, I'm lucid. I can handle a to-do list of things that I need to do. All the things are going the way they're supposed to be going. I will never... Be able to finish all the things that i want to do that's how i know i'm baseline if i finish everything i want to do then i might be ramping up a bit because it's just not in me to be able to do all the things that i think i can um so one time i was really frustrated with being baseline but not being able to write and i was looking at this one med that i take and i was like i wonder what would happen If I just lowered the dosage on this, just a hair, would the writing be easier? Would it come back? I wonder. But then if it did, what would be the side effects of that? Would I be hypomanic? Would I be getting into too many things? So changing your meds without, I'm not going to say permission, but without a discussion, it's a non-thing. You can't do that. But I did it. And it did exactly what I thought it would do. I was a little bit more creative. I was a little bit more in the pocket. I was a little bit more the things. And I stopped. And I went back to my baseline before I could even find out where that would go. Um, That's not some shit I want to play around with at all. It's just not. I'm not willing to take those chances. It took me too long to get the right cocktail to be baseline for me to start fucking it up just out of curiosity. That's when you know you're really doing well, when you want to fuck some shit up out of curiosity. Um, So I stay as baseline as I possibly can. I won't say that I don't get frustrated, because I do. Um, I won't say that it's perfect, because it's not, but I'm alive. Um, I've been suicidal before not ever trying to go back there again, ever, ever, ever. Um, Bipolar two means that you are, um, you literally go from one pole to the other. You're depressed, you're hypomanic. You're depressed, you're hypomanic. So most people, you spend some time in depression, then you come up, you stay here, and then you go to hypomania. And then you come up and you stay here and you go back to depression. Um, Now, how fast this is going to go is dependent on your brain chemistry and your meds or lack thereof, et cetera. So some people will stay in depression for a while. Alexa, stop. And slowly, slowly come back to baseline. And they can stay in baseline for a long time, months, years even. And then slowly, slowly, slowly go back to hypomania and um, be a little all over the place right? And then they slowly, slowly come back. This is what bipolar 2 looks like. My bipolar 2 does not look like that. Mine looks like this. I spend so little time here without medication that I don't even get to feel it. I go from I want to kill myself to I can take over the world and back. Um, it's not That's not rapid cycling. Rapid cycling is when you do this within a day. It's very rare. Very rare. Don't assume that people are rapid cycling because this—it's a—it's almost—it's negligible the amount of people who can do this in a day. Yes, it does happen, but it's very rare. Um, but I would be here for a month, here for a week, here for a month, back and forth, just like this. I talked about this on an episode of my Facebook Live from about two years ago. That I am going to run, and I talked about meeting my psychiatrist for the first time and explaining to him. Um, my cycle and him almost not believing me because it's so easy to control with meds. He couldn't understand why I was living that way. And he also couldn't understand how I was alive because the more you do this, the more intense each place is. So the first time I ended up here, I was probably 15. The first time I suffered from clinical depression and it took a whole year to come out of it. And then it took another maybe two years to experience hypomania for the first time. And then it took a whole year to come out of that. And then another two years to get to mania. I mean depression. Back and forth slowly. By the time I'm thirty-five, it's this. And he didn't believe me. And he couldn't understand why I wasn't treated for it. And I'm like, my nig, how am I treated for it if no doctor is noticing this and making changes? Uh it was February twenty second, the first day I met my new psychiatrist. February 22nd, 2016. And I asked him, how many of your patients are baseline? How many are still struggling? And he said, none of them are struggling. All of my clients are baseline. And I was like, this mofo. And I was like, what do you mean all of them? He said, every single client I have is baseline, except for you. And that's because this is your first day here. Um, he said, give me six months. It took him seven and I'll have you baseline. I was baseline exactly seven months later. That was in 2016, we're in 2020. I have not moved from here. It's the longest time I've been in one place since I was 15 years old, right here and uh, 2020. This past February makes four years, never in my life and I didn't believe him four years ago. I absolutely did not believe him that that was a possibility. Um, but he was right. Although I do like to mention to him that it took him seven months and not six months. And he always says, well, one month you needed to get three and you didn't even have your medicine. Whatever. It was seven, not six. But um, Tracy said, if you don't mind sharing, how did they diagnose your bipolar disorder? Was it a discussion with your doctor or did they do testing? Blood work, neurological exams. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, there's no blood work or neurological exams that can determine that you're bipolar too. You can determine if some of your actions, like maybe your sleep or, you know, habits that you can see. But nah, it's just a straight up questionnaire. And it's a family history, um, which I have. And it's, uh, yeah, it's questions in a family history, really. Um, I'm trying to think. I know that for the first 10 years that I was in therapy, um, my therapist would give me a questionnaire maybe every three or four months. We would go through it, and she would be like, nope, you're not bipolar. Every couple months go by, how do you feel about this, this, this? When's the last time this? And I would answer them all, honestly. Not, nope, 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 nope. And if she, you know, she said, if I get a questionnaire that makes me feel like, yeah, I'm going to send you to a psychiatrist for further testing. Years, y'all. And the only reason why she kept questioning me is because I have a family history. Um, and because if you have dep- if you have depression and anxiety, it's kinda hard to tell is it depression and anxiety or is it bipolar one or two? Um, and then I remember one day we were talking and she said, When's the last time I did a uh just a quick questionnaire? I better up up update my files for you. I was like, Okay. She's like, XYZ, 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 what about? And then we were both looking at each other like fuck i think she might have skipped two tests so maybe it was like nine months without her asking and she was like yeah also i had i was newly sober so the joy of being newly sober is that i realized all my life i've been drinking and you know the drinking was stopping the bipolar symptoms Um, if you're always drunk, you're not going to know whether you're depressed or anxious or hypomanic. None of it. Everything's everything. So I stopped drinking and then, uh, I had a baby. I nursed her. That's often, um, keeps those types of mental health things at bay as well. And then by the time she weaned, I was like off to the races with something else. And I was like, well, I could have just kept drinking. This is some bullshit. So now I stopped drinking and now I got to deal with this bipolar 2 shit. That's gross. Um, yeah. So that was that. Just a questionnaire. Um, no, it wasn't easy, Karen. Sometimes I have pep talks with myself. And if I'm really feeling, um, I don't want to say down, but just questioning my whole self. And I think in February, you kept going and kept trying to find a doctor when you wanted to give up. And I remember calling my doctor and saying, I need antidepressants. I'm not feeling well. I need antidepressants. They work quick. I know, what I, I know what I take. You have it right there in my chart. Please call it in. And him saying, I can't call it in. I can't call in this medication without seeing you. And I said, when can I come in? He said, I have an appointment in two months. And I was like, but I'll be dead in two months. Like, what? You can't even give me, like. I was so upset. Um, I called emergency rooms and they all said, you have to come in and be admitted into the mental health ward. Yay. And then we'll treat you. Cause of course I get it. You can't just prescribe someone these types of medications without monitoring them. Even though I've been on it forever. Um, I just, this one nurse just took pity on me and said, call this guy. He does not take insurance, but this is what you need. He always has same day appointments. And I called, and they said, yep, we can come in today or tomorrow. But it's $500, we don't take insurance. I didn't have $500. I don't even know if I had a dollar. And uh, my friend, a friend of mine gave me the money. I went. Here we are. Um, I often think about how many people need to be in that man's office who don't have $500 to see him. And it's $500 every time I go. Um, and I was seeing him once every three weeks, $500 once every three weeks. Damn near got put out of my apartment because going to my psychiatrist was as expensive as my rent at that time. And I'm borrowing and stealing to get there. Now how often do I go? One time I came in and he said, I want you to meet someone, one of my patients, if that's okay. Because you remind me a lot of her. I'm like, sure. So she comes in, we're chatting, and he said, Explain to Aaliyah, like, what your life is like now, a couple years after being with me. And she said, I come here once a year to get my prescriptions and to tell them what's up, and I move on. And I very rarely think about the fact that I'm bipolar. I take my meds in the morning, I take my meds in the evening, and I get along with my life. And I was like, this lying bitch, you just put her up here. I have been seeing him for about three months. Didn't believe it. Um, So we are in year four. I have not gotten to once a year yet, which annoys me. I'm once every 10 months, um, once every nine months. But the idea, y'all, that I could go from seeing him every three weeks to every nine months. I believe the next time I see him is next month It's a teletherapy session. That's May. I believe he's going to tell me I'll see you May 2021. And I will fall out on the floor and start crying. Not because he's telling me this, but because I know it makes sense. I know I'm there where I can go a year without seeing him. Granted, I might call him. I think I'm going to call him this week, actually. Oh, wait, I did call him. He owes me a call back. Um, I'm going to talk to him and just update him on pandemic shit. But uh, it's amazing. It's super amazing that I can go that long without seeing him. Don't go that long without seeing a therapist. That's every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. The reason why I'm saying all this is because I feel like I didn't really hear a lot about this world from writers. I hear a lot about this world from people who are just mental health advocates. But besides my girl Bossy, I don't know that many writers who get very detailed about their life as... And mental health shit. And I feel like I'm especially o- obligated? Not obligated. The idea that I'm dual diagnosed just makes me a unicorn. A dual diagnosed writer, I feel like if you can, transparency once in a while it's great. Um, I'm at a really great spot in my life, y'all, with my writing. With lots of things, but specifically with my writing. Um, and that's only because I, I have two, I have both of those devils at bay. That bitch alcoholism is over here and that whole bipolar two is over there. And every single day I am battling them both. Well, for the most part, um, the idea that I'm having trouble sleeping right now is like almost, uh, a gift, honestly, because it's like just a little tiny peek at what life looks like when I'm not on my shit. And it's a, if it's a very small thing. Um, but it's a little tiny peek at what life is like when things are not going well. And I'm really grateful that things are going pretty well. If all If my only complaint is I'm not sleeping well, I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Okay, takeaways. I'm obsessed with. um, Thank you, Karen. I think I will check this out. Um, I'm obsessed with the hierarchy of needs. And it says that at the very bottom is stuff like food, breathing, you know, all the things, shelter, all the things we need, need, need before we can think about anything. And I think of the hierarchy of needs as something for writers to think about, too. Because if you don't have these things in place, I don't know if writing is something you should be trying to do uh, full time. Um, Unless it's for you. There's writing that you do just for you, of course. But if it's something that you're doing professionally, oh, it's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I always just call it hierarchy of needs, but it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, The first one is physiological. You need air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing. Do you have that right now? If you don't have air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, it's not likely that that you'd be able to talk to me. You'd be able to experience what I'm talking about right now. It's the first thing we need. Can you be a writer if you don't have air, water, food, shelter, sleep, and clothing? Of course not. It's just not possible. So if you don't have those things, you need to get there before you do anything else. Then comes safety, which is security, employment, resources, health, property. Can you be a writer if you don't have all those things? You can. You can. It might not be on the level that you want it to be, but you can. Then there's love and belonging, friendship intimacy, family, sense of connection. You need that. So this is where love and belonging is where your your isms can get your shit fucked up. Because if you are suffering from addiction or you're dealing with mental health shit, love and belonging is going to get kicked out of there. It's really tough to have friendship, intimacy, family, and a connection when you're struggling with those things. Next is esteem, respect, status, recognition, strength, freedom. Hard to have those when you are untreated, bipolar 2, or are an addict of any sort. So I often think, where am I on the hierarchy of needs? Right now, I am at the very, very top of the hierarchy of needs. I have all of the things in the pyramid. Self-actualization is the desire to become the most that one can be. And I'm so very grateful, but that's where I am. I'm literally at the top of the hierarchy of needs, and my day is spent being the best me that I can possibly be. And part of being the best me that I can pers- personally be is sharing that. So this episode has been a rambling, nonsensical piece of something. Yeah, it's not true, but that oh I'm well. <laughs> that I'm hoping. Um, has been some help. Um, I'm at the top of the hierarchy of needs. All I'm trying to do every single day is be the best that I can possibly be. And I think part of that is sharing with you where I've been and where I'm going. I think that's it for today. As Wendy Williams used to say long, long ago, I love you for listening. I don't know where the end now button is On here, my OCD won't allow me to just close the tab. Um, live. Oh, I see it over there. Um, all right, thanks, guys. I appreciate you being here. This was amazing for me, so I hope it was amazing for you too. Tracy says, Absolutely not. This has been a gift, it's been a gift for me too, for real, y'all. I gotta go.